Welcome to Work and the Future, a podcast about tomorrow, with your host, Linda Nazareth. Well, hello, and thank you for joining us today. We've been talking so much about this pandemic and how it will change the future of work. I think we sometimes forget we had issues before any of us had heard of COVID-19. One of those issues was climate change. You know, there may be different views on how to handle that one, but the reality is it's going to be with us for a long time, and it's going to have an impact on the economy and on work for decades to come. That's what we're going to talk about today, the issues around climate change, as well as the issues around jobs because of it. Our guest is Keith Stewart from Greenpeace Canada. He has some interesting thoughts on how it might all evolve. So please stay with us for what's a really interesting discussion. Right now, the world's attention is on COVID-19. The implications are really affecting every industry. But adding a pandemic does not mean the issue of climate change has gone away. The fact is, our planet's going through an adjustment, to say the least. And our choices around how to handle that are going to have an impact on the economy and on jobs over the longer term. Now, to talk about how that may play out, I'm joined today by Keith Stewart. He's a senior energy strategist with Greenpeace Canada, and he also teaches at the University of Toronto. Now, Keith has been a climate policy researcher and advocate for nearly two decades, so he has lots of thoughts on this. He joins us now. Hi, Keith. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. There's a lot to talk about. Let's go back in time a little bit. You know, before the pandemic hit, what were the big items on your agenda for 2020? So we were really, so at at Greenpeace, but also I think in the environmental movement, climate change is the primary focus. It's the biggest threat facing the planet. It's the biggest threat, frankly, facing the economy. Um, And we were working on trying to get renewable energy policies in place. We had recently had run a campaign that ended up being successful to try and block a new oil sands mine being built. Um, and we were trying to get the government to actually implement its uh, climate agenda, the one that it campaigned on, that achieved the types of reductions it said it would, it promised internationally it would achieve. Uh, but it was very much kind of business and politics as usual. And I think with the pandemic, what we've seen is we now know what it looks like for a government to treat a crisis like a crisis. Um, a, almost a year ago, a year and a couple of weeks ago, uh, the Canadian Parliament passed a motion saying climate cha- change was an emergency. We were in the middle of a climate emergency, and yet we didn't see a response commensurate with that. And I think one of the interesting things about COVID is it's kind of like, okay, if they're actually, if we do face an emergency, what kind of changes are we willing to make? What kind of investments are governments willing to make? And I think we've seen a response to the pandemic, which you know is not perfect by any means, but it is, uh, I think, a genuine kind of nationwide response to try and deal with a threat in a way that we really haven't done with climate change. So you've got the pandemic on top of what you say was an emergency before this. Does it change the longer term for you, or is this a blip? Does it affect climate change? So I'll, there's been a lot of discussions around, oh, emissions went down because people weren't driving as much, people aren't taking planes, and that really is just a blip. Um, you know, If we go back to the way things were, um, the, this sort of the three, six, nine months, however long we're going to be in this thing, 
will just be a blip because it's very much about cumulative emissions over years, over decades. Um, but I also think that we actually have a chance to build back better, to actually have a new and better normal coming out of the pandemic, which can actually prepare us for that low carbon future and start also preparing us for the low carbon jobs and work of the future. You know, I know you're based in Canada, obviously Toronto, right? Yeah. Um, but this is really an international issue. Is there anything one government can do by itself or are you looking for every government to, to do things to make this work? Well, Greenpeace, so globally Greenpeace, we, we have, you know, we operate in 50 some countries um, and our entire global organization has kind of put aside kind of the, the normal work that was going on and said, okay, we're going to focus on building a green and just recovery in every country in which we operate. Um, so, you know, that's, we're in the United States, we're in Germany, we're in Norway, we're in Russia, we're in China, we're in Indonesia, India. You know, we are focusing all around the world on trying to make sure that we come out of this pandemic, which, you know, is a genuine crisis. We have to take, you know, the immediate concern is making sure people don't die, but also that people can keep food on the table, can, you know, not lose their housing because they've lost employment. Um, but as we sort of come out of this, governments are going to make big investments to sort of kickstart the economy again. And we want to make sure that those actually accelerate the transition off of fossil fuels rather than delay it. Well, let's talk about what this means for jobs, because we're talking about work in the future. So far, we've lost jobs in restaurants and kind of frontline things, retail. Haven't seen really large-scale layoffs through every industry yet. How do you see it playing out from your point of view? Yeah, this is, I mean, this is a, a novel type of economic impact. Um, and I think, you know, we're very much along with some economists like, I mean, uh, uh, I'm now blocking on her last name with them, um, but saying that, you know, this is a, a she session, like it's very much a predominantly impact on women in a way that, for instance, the 2008 recession predominantly impacted men's jobs. Um, and obviously we can't apply the same type of thinking to resolve this one as we have in the past when it was primarily kind of you know, blue collar industrial jobs that were like on in this case is primarily uh, service jobs. Well, sorry, the blue collar job, the industrial jobs are gone as well, but there's so many more of the service jobs that are gone um, that it's having a very different type of impact. And we can't just think, you know, how will, how will we deal with this in the way we have before? But um, when you look at the packages that countries are introducing around the world, um, in Germany, for instance, you know, they're having a very aggressive campaign to make sure that their, their COVID recovery is part of uh, their climate change fund. That's very common right across Europe, actually. We're seeing kind of the opposite in the United States, where under Donald Trump, there's actually you know, billions upon billions pouring into oil companies, for instance, to help them, uh, because obviously they've been hit by double whammy, the, the pandemic and the drop in demand for product. Um, but the, as we recover from this, we're going to have to, you know, like I think childcare is going to have to be a big part of the solution. I think when you're looking, you know, I have kids in school um, and, you know, if there's no school, uh, you know, both parents can't go back to work full time. Um, and this predominantly generally impacts women 
more than men in terms of who ends up having to pick up that slack. Uh, so, you know, childcare is going to have to be a part of this. Um, but it's also interesting because a lot of uh, caring, what we call caring jobs, you know, sort of looking after people, looking after children, uh, long-term care facilities, uh, healthcare, those are actually predominantly low-carbon jobs as well. And actually a shift in employment out of kind of, you know, making more stuff and then making stuff that could be thrown away really quickly so that you can get people to buy the new, the same product the next year. Um, that is part of the economy that you know, has to shrink. But the, the caring parts of the economy is sort of looking after each other. Those are predominantly low carbon and those can be a big part of the future that we don't normally think of. We normally think of green jobs as, oh, building solar panels. We're installing them. Um, but also looking after each other is also low carbon work. That's an interesting way to look at it. Now you say Germany has made good strides to doing this the right way, and you've looked at other countries. What are some actionable things you've seen done that you'd like to see repeated in other countries? Uh, so actually, there's been some really good proposals here in Canada um, coming out of various think tanks and groups. Um, uh, one group brought together, there's a magazine called Corporate Nights, um, which sort of brought together a bunch of analysis and groups. And they actually have put together a package which the, you know, the federal government and provincial governments could just pick up and run with, which is, and they say it would create 5 million person years of employment between now and 2030 um, to help green our economy. So it's things like um, supporting farmers to adopt practices for restoring the soil. It's like making buildings more efficient. It's building low carbon or... Uh, electric vehicles and public transit systems, uh, offering rebates for low carbon cement and steel, um, you know, planting a lot of trees. Uh, well, actually not, we need to focus on sort of restoring forests rather than just plantations. Um, and, you know, it would cost $10 billion a year according to their calculation, which is about 0.4% of GDP. So, you know, if you think, oh, this is the greatest emergency facing, you know, the global economy in this coming, this century, you know, paying, 0.4% of GDP seems like not that much. Um, but it's also uh, going to save us, you know, over the next 10 years, about $40 billion on energy bills. So it's not just sort of money going out the door. It's also money staying in your pocket because you're paying, you know, you're not paying as much for the fuel that goes into your vehicle. Um, you're not paying as much to heat your home. Uh, so we actually have sort of comprehensive packages for here's how we can put people back to work making sure that our homes are more energy efficient, for making sure that we have great public transit systems that get you where you need to go when you need to get there and increasingly in pollution-free vehicles. Um, we can have young people out uh, restoring ecosystems, doing that kind of work, which is because uh, our soils, our trees, our, you know, they actually hold a lot of carbon in them. And by sort of strengthening the protections, providing buffer zones for them, in some cases, new plantings, you can actually sort of help lock in the carbon, keep it in the soil, in the trees, rather than in the air. Um, there's all kinds of opportunities. Because the great thing is, like, there's no way we can solve climate change without putting a lot of people to work doing a lot of things. I don't think anyone has a problem with <clears throat> putting people to work doing things. I think where people get scared is thinking about people who will not be employed. And so, you know, I actually think that the, the CERB, the, you know, this sort of temporary measure we brought in, 
in recognition of the fact that people are losing their jobs because of no fault of their own, right? Like, you know, you're not, it's not like people don't want to go to work. It's, you know, you can't go to work because it's not safe. And I think that logic we need to carry over into the broader coming economic transition. Um, so we think that the CERB could, you know, either could be evolved towards something like a um, guaranteed livable income, um, but it could also be, I think, as a bridge strategy for what's often called a just transition strategy, because we know some industries are going to have to shrink, and there's, you know, workers in those industries, communities that rely on them, you know, for instance, the oil and gas industry in Canada, uh, that their jobs are going, some of those jobs are going to go away. And it's not the fault of those individuals. They should not be asked to bear that burden alone. And so what we've seen, again, in other countries, but actually to a limited extent here in Canada around the coal phase out that the federal government implemented is the broader community, the country actually has to support those communities, those workers through that transition. So it's things like, uh, you know, partially it's just, it's funding, it's retraining, and it's sort of making green jobs available to those people so that they can be part of that new economy. I mean, one of the interesting things being talked about in Alberta is, you know, getting big into geothermal energy, uh, which is, you know, geothermal is at the point where sort of solar energy was a decade ago. You know, it was kind of expensive, but costs could come down with big investments. I mean, right now, uh, even in Alberta under Jason Kenney, which is not, shall we say, the most environmentally friendly jurisdiction um you know they're, they're building uh solar plants because it's actually cheaper it's the cheapest form of energy to build um alberta has great sun um alberta also has the best geothermal geothermal resources and and the skills you need to be able to tap into that energy source is people who know how to drill holes really deep into the ground and if there's you know something that we have you know lots of highly trained highly competent people to do in alberta it's people who know how to drill holes in ground and pump stuff in and out. And that's the kind of, you know, so we should be actually like helping make that transition, move those people between industries. And it's not something where it's going to be, have to be up to that individual. So the broader community has to support this, but it's also going to create great long-term jobs in Alberta, but also right across the country. Yeah, we're using Canadian examples here. You mentioned the CERB earlier. We should probably say that's oh, yeah. the, the the income subsidy that the Canadian government gave. Kind of no questions asked, $2,000 in everyone's account right off the top. Are you arguing for a basic income over the long term? So we think we should definitely look at a basic income. And so much depends on how you do it is a problem. It's, it's one of these things where it's like, it's a great idea in theory. Like, I think we support it in principle, but you can do it in good or bad ways. There's also sort of arguments um, that we should actually focus on, you know, having a basic services agenda rather than basic income. So making sure everyone have access to housing and access to food as basic rights. Um, and or could even be a mix of those. But, you know, the, the sort of the, the idea behind it is that we support everyone in our society because, frankly, we are one of the wealthiest societies in human history. There's lots of money there. I mean, one of the things that we're also advocating for as part of our package is a wealth tax. Um, and it's like, it's, it's kind of fascinating because, you know, we've been saying for a while, you should have a wealth tax. It's not, a lot of people say, but that's not an environmental issue, but actually income inequality is, um, if you look at, uh, it, there's who gets harmed most by environmental problems, it tends to be low income communities, often racialized communities. And in Canada, particularly, um, frontline communities, indigenous, black people of color. Um, so greater in it 
equality is part of solving climate change. It's also the way you can pay for a lot of this. And interestingly, like the, the polls now in Canada are all showing there's about 70% support for a wealth tax to help pay for some of these things. That's an, that's interesting. We'll have to see if that if people are actually happy to do that when they get taxed. I mean, yeah. we're coming out of this with a lot of bills to pay. And um, obviously we have listeners in Canada, but also everywhere. Every country is running gigantic deficits. Do you think that there will be changes in attitudes one way or the other when we're faced with the bills? Um, I would say yes. It's really hard to know how this is going to turn out because we don't even know how long it's going to last. I mean, it's true. this is unprecedented. I know... Uh, I remember, you know, I've been doing climate change advocacy since the late 90s. Um, so I'd like to say I have a lot of experience with losing. Uh, it's a thing I know well. I like to think you try and learn each time. So I presumably have learned and grown a lot over my career. Um, but one of the things I really remember is from the 2008 financial crisis. Because uh, I don't remember back then, but around 2007, there was sort of this peak in concern over climate change. There's a lot of action happening. Then the financial crisis hit because of really crazy risk-taking by the big banks um, and the economy collapsed and a lot, a lot of support for action on climate change and those programs kind of collapsed with it um, as people were worried about pocketbook issues. Um, and I think the environmental movement was really caught off guard by that. We're kind of like, oh, we don't know what to do because this is a financial crisis. It has nothing to do with us. Well, actually it does. <laughs> and so part of what I think we're trying to focus on in response to the pandemic, which is a different type of crisis. You know, as you said, you know, different people are losing their jobs. Um, but to say, okay, we actually have this moment where politics as usual, the economy as usual is been thrown off the rails. And it's kind of an opportunity to say, okay, if we're going to put things back together, this is an opportunity to question, how do we want to do this? What are the things we want to emphasize? And for us, it's definitely you know, as we build back and figure out how to pay for things, um, we need to actually say, hey, it's, it's kind of crazy that we have all these offshore you know, tax havens, which allow billionaires who control. I mean, the here in Canada, the, the Parliamentary Budget Office, which is sort of an independent officer of the federal government, um, it looked at income inequality in Canada, wealth inequality. And it basically, I think it said that the top 1% owns 25% of the wealth in the country, or and the bottom 40% own like 1.2% or something like that. It was about that. Um, and, you know, that's, I mean, that's crazy. That's like going back to the Gilded Age. Uh, and if you look at what happened back then, it was there was a huge public movement to actually make taxation fairer to make the uber wealthy pay their fair share. So, you know, if you're talking about a wealth tax, it's, you know, it's going after that 1% who actually have a huge chunk of the wealth and saying, okay, we actually need to share this out better and bear the burden. The same way on climate programs, we sort of say, you know, polluters need to pay their fair share. Um, the companies uh, who have made a lot of money uh, off of making the climate crisis worse. And many of them were involved in campaigns to deny the science on climate change too, so that they could keep that uh, sort of that money rolling in a little longer. You know, they have to pay their fair share now. And this is something I think that there is broad support for, and the support is much stronger amongst the public than I think amongst elites, obviously. Uh, but 
that is the thing we're going to have to wrestle with. So if we're figuring out how we're going to pay for this, there's a huge amount of money. Well, there's a huge amount of wealth as well in, in our society. And we can, you know, we're all going to have to pay for this, but we should pay fair shares. Okay. I want to get back to some of the career issues and the jobs issues coming out of this. You know, youth tends to be the group that suffers the most after recessions, right? They don't get the first jobs. They don't get the the paychecks they want. It's just harder for many years. And, and this is a different circumstance. Do you think there will be something unique this time or are you more optimistic? I have a 15 year old, so, um, <laughs> you know, it's, he's not quite in the workforce yet, but it's not that far away. Um, and it is particularly hard on youth because opportunities dry up, right? Like, and a lot of the, uh, sort of entry level positions, there's people with more experience scrambling for them. Um, and, but this is where I think investments in, training and in, frankly, building infrastructure that we need for a low carbon economy, you can actually build into that apprenticeship opportunities, training opportunities for youth so that they are graduating into those new green jobs. Um, the, I teach at the University of Toronto a uh, course on environmental policy, and it's about half environmental studies students, but half engineering students. Um, and it's fascinating because I've been teaching the course, I, don't know, I think about eight years now. And the shift amongst the engineering students is really remarkable to my mind about the kinds of jobs, that, the kind of work that they want to do. They want to be part of that solution. Um, they want to know like, okay, how can I have a career making the world a better place? And that's a, an increasingly common thing amongst youth. I think when you look at sort of the the explosion of the climate strikes amongst students in the last two years where you really had young people taking the lead and demanding action on climate change. And it's because they recognize that their future is threatened, but that they also have an opportunity to be part of that solution. And this is going to be the life work for a huge chunk of the population. This isn't something that you're going to solve in five years, right? This is for the next century, we're going to spend trying to fix the problem we've created over the last century. And that's going to require a lot of people doing a lot of work, and it's going to require a kind of political commitment that is going to be hard to maintain. But you know, certainly when I'm dealing with the youth, young people who are sort of demanding action, it's, it is promising there that they, rec they sort of see the scale of the problem, and they don't understand why my generation hasn't uh, been able to recognize that scale and take on that challenge, which they are more than willing to do. You mentioned engineering students. You know, they go into a lot of different industries, but often it's petroleum engineering. Yep. And we're talking about changing the oil and gas sector, perhaps, or you're talking about that. How will it play out for groups like that? So I think the... I, I, I remember I was lobbying somebody, and like, he turned to me and he said, look, we are making progress one retirement dinner at a time. Um, and so I think the, the new cohort coming up, it's kind of, uh, well, I, I remember I was dealing with, um, one government institution, um, and their senior guys, well, I was talking to them and they were all like, you know, why would you even want to do that? Like, why would you actually want to phase out coal plants in Ontario? Coal works perfectly fine. It, you know, it's good technology. We like it. Um, and the younger guys, sorry, younger men and women 
who were working in that same organization were all like, well, it's really exciting to figure out how we can actually design the electricity system to work in a much more distributed way with much more renewable energy, move towards 100% renewables. This is a great problem that we want to solve. Um, so to a certain extent, you know, they're, they're moving up through the ranks there, but we also need some big pushes for those people at the top who maybe haven't quite uh, seen the light <laughs> there. But it's, uh, you know, I find it comforting that, again, out west in, amongst the petroleum industry, you actually have a, a push from one of the guy from one of the CEOs of one of the explorer and driller, like the, so within the industry, you have the, the big guys who sort of, you know, run the big oil sands plant, the big, uh, they have a whole bunch of drill rigs, etc. But then you have sort of the smaller guys where they, they do more of the exploration, the, the drilling, the contracting. And it's their, the explorers and developers group is usually sort of the less progressive half we think about them because they're so focused on, you know, they got to drill the next well, kind of like they're going from uh, contract to contract. But coming out of that sector, you actually have a push from one of the CEOs, but backed by a bunch of the other people in the industry saying, you know, we, we want to be part of that geothermal solution. We want to figure out ways that we can actually tap into old oil wells and take the heat, the heat energy that's down there and use that to provide green power. Um, and so, you know, that guy is saying, you know, our companies were willing to help to work with government to sort of retrain people to sort of develop that technology to build in that infrastructure. But it's got to be that kind of a partnership because it's taking a big risk on their part and they need to have some support. And you know, I'd say like that's actually a great opportunity for to use those skills, to use that brain power, which you know, Canada has a lot of people who are really good and really smart in that industry to sort of make them part of the solution. And again, as someone in the industry said, uh, one of their lobbyists, he's kind of like, well, you know, there's, there comes, a, we're fighting over some environmental policy. And he's kind of like, yeah, there'll come the point where they, we stop paying the lawyers to, you know, fight the new regulation and we start paying the engineers to figure out a way to just do it. Um, and then we'll be fine with it. And I think, we need to move from that phase of, you know, having industry sort of focused on fighting these laws, running these campaigns. They're still running against things like the carbon tax um, and actually just become part of the solution. So when you're looking at this next phase and the next phase of jobs and youth and everything else, are there skills you think people need to develop that perhaps we haven't yet? So there's the technical skills on, you know, how do you, install solar panels? How do you do geothermal energy? How, you know, how can we scale up wind turbines? How can we start developing an offshore wind industry? Um, which again, offshore wind is huge in Europe, non-existent in Canada, pretty much. Um, although Canada, of course, has the largest coastline in the world. Um, so there's a technical element, but there's also the, the policy framework, sort of how do you create a policy incentives that help drive money, skills, talent in the right direction. And that's the kind of thing that coming out of the pandemic, governments have to help get that framework right. Um, but there's also, I think, different ways of working. A lot of renewable energies, for instance, are, tend to be smaller scale, modular. Um, and you know, one way to think about it is we're moving from an era in the, the energy system from 
sort of back when, remember in computers when we used to have mainframe computers? I, I remember <laughs> when I first started, like when I was high school, they still were using the uh, paper punch cards. Um, you had sort of these big main computers, which then sort of went out to a bunch of little terminals. Now we have laptops and the internet, um, much more distributed, but actually much more powerful and much more resilient. Um, you know, if the power goes out to a mainframe, then everything goes down. The internet is a lot harder to take down. Um, and so I think that's sort of having that sh the shift in mindsets also to a more distributed, decentralized world where you have to figure out ways to cooperate um, is going to be part of that solution as well. And final thought, do you consider yourself an optimist? Uh, optimism of the spirit of the spirit, pessimism of the intellect. You have to think about how everything could go wrong to try and avoid that, but you have to stay optimistic or I wouldn't get out of bed in the morning. Keith, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Keith Stewart is a senior energy strategist with Greenpeace Canada. Well, a lot to think about from today's discussion. If you want to know more about today's guest, and if you want to see show notes, please go to theworkandthefuturepodcast.com. And if you did enjoy this episode and the show, please leave a review on Apple iTunes. It will really help other people find this podcast and continue to this discussion. You can also connect with me on Twitter at at Relentless Eco. That's it for this episode. Thank you for being here. And as always, a huge thanks to Stokely Audio for handling all things to do with audio production. To learn more about work and the future and to see show notes, go to the workandthefuturepodcast.com. You can also contact us at comments at the workandthefuturepodcast.com. The Work and the Future podcast with Linda Nazareth is a relentless economics production.